Welcome to First Line. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson, and I am a student doctor in my last year of medical school. First Line brings listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness through an osteopathic lens. First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, how to succeed in medical school, and various topics in healthcare, including mental health, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I encourage you to seek the advice of a physician, a DO, or an MD with any concerns or questions you have about your symptoms or medical conditions. Hello, welcome to First Line. Today, I'm going to be talking about female wellness visits, going into detail about screening tests and how to ensure that you can lower your risk of uh, certain diseases that are specific to women and also what to expect at a wellness visit. So first of all, for cervical cancer, so this is your pap smear. It's important to know, first of all, that cervical cancer is the only cancer that we have a vaccine for. That is the HPV vaccine. And if you have the HPV vaccine, you're still going to get pap smears, but pap smears are not going to decrease your risk. It's only going to be a screening so we can catch cervical cancer. But if you want to reduce your risk, of cervical cancer get the HPV vaccine. Cervical cancer is caused by HPV and there are other risk factors, but it is caused by a virus that we have a vaccine for. Cervical cancer does not run in families. So just because you don't have anyone in your family that has cervical cancer doesn't mean anything. If your mom had cervical cancer, it does not affect your risk at all. It is caused by HPV, okay. So, with screening, screening starts at age 21, and from ages 21 to 29, a screening is done every three years with a pap smear. And the reason why we start at age 21 is because many women actually get HPV younger than 21, but almost all cases, the woman is able to get over the virus. So it does not affect her at all. It does present a problem later, and that's why we care if you're HPV positive after that. So between ages 30 and 65, so between these ages, screening is going to be done every five years, either with HPV testing for the DNA or with the HPV in cytology, which is the pap smear. So those are really your choices there. But there are also certain at-risk groups that will require more frequent screening than this. So that can include if you're HIV positive, if you have compromised immunity for any reason, if you have history of cervical neoplasia, 
or cervical cancer, or if you've been exposed to diethyl stilbestrol, also known as DES, in utero. But DES has been discontinued in 1971, so if you were born after 1971, you probably were not, you were not exposed to DES. And it's important to note, over the age of 65, it becomes optional to do screening, and it's not recommended, but that is only if you had screening in the last 10 years, and the last three pap smears were negative. Or if two of the last pap smears and HPV testing were negative. Also, if you had a hysterectomy for reasons that were unrelated to cancer, then you no longer need cervical cancer screening at all. So risk factors for cervical cancer so all of them are caused by HPV infection, like I said, human papillomavirus. And this is transmitted via vaginal or oral intercourse. And cervical cancer is a squamous cell carcinoma that is found in sexually active patients. Cervical cancer risk can increase with an earlier age of starting intercourse, and also having a greater number of lifetime sexual partners. Because like any sexually transmitted illness or disease, the more chances of exposure you have, the greater your risk. Like I said, DES exposure can also be a risk factor as well as cigarette smoking, which is especially correlated with cervical dysplasia or cancer, which can increase your risk uh, four times the amount. So it makes you predisposed to developing dysplasia, which is really a precursor to cancer, or with cancer when exposed to HPV. And then immunosuppression as well makes you predisposed to most infections, and HPV is in that category as well. So the pap smear or the pap test is a screening test and it is used because it is relatively inexpensive. It's easy to do in the office. Also, we have a screening for cervical cancer because cervical cancer has this long state of being asymptomatic for 10 years or more. So that means that we can with a screening test, we can find it without waiting for symptoms to appear. And then there are also effective treatments that we can use for disease that is pre-invasive before it gets bad. Because we wouldn't screen for something if we couldn't do anything about it with a positive screening test. And so the PAP test has up to an 80% sensitivity, which means that in all women that have cervical cancer, the PAP test will be positive in 80% of those patients, which means that 20% are going to be missed, but if you have the pap test done every three years or so, and it's going to be asymptomatic for over 10 years, then odds are you're going to find it with one of those pap smears. And it also has a specificity pretty close to 100, which means that there are fewer false positives, which means if you have a positive test, then 
you are very likely to actually have cervical cancer. You may have heard about breast self-exams. So, it is actually recommended to not do breast self-exams. Of course, it's not going to hurt you to always um, check your breasts, but it's actually not proven to actually reduce risk of breast cancer or earlier detection. So it's currently in the guidelines that physicians will not teach you how to do a breast exam. It is more important for you to get annual visits and have a physician do a breast exam. So a DO or an MD to do a breast exam on you regularly. But ultimately, the best thing that you can do for reducing your risk of breast cancer or catching breast cancer early for screening is to get mammography because that is way more accurate than a self-exam or even a physician doing a breast exam. So with breast cancer, so this is the mammogram, it is recommended to do screening every two years starting at the age of 50 and ending at the age of 74. Between the ages of 40 and 50, it's recommended right now for that to be an individual decision. And obviously, if you have family history, if you have a BRCA gene mutation, that's going to be different too. Um, and that's from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. The American Cancer Society, they say that that it should start at age 45 and extend to age 54. So they go a little bit younger and then go, they don't go as old. So they actually recommend that ages 45 to 54 get mammograms every year. So they actually start younger and they want every year to be screened. And at the age of 55, they switch to every two years. And then they put the um, option for females starting at 40. Then the American College of Radiology actually say that for females at average risk, which means um, anyone that does not have family history, they should actually start screening at age 40. And there's only recommendation to start younger than 40 if you're in a high-risk category, uh, such as having a BRCA mutation. Then also, the American College of Radiology considers anyone of African-American background to also be high risk. So what do you do if you have a breast lump? Well, the first thing is you want to go see your physician. They're going to ask you exactly where the lump is, when you first noticed it, how you first noticed it, whether it was from a breast self-exam, if another doctor uh, saw the lump or if it was found on mammogram and they want to know how long it's been there if there has been any change to the size especially if it changes throughout the month throughout your menstrual cycle that's important to know and then if there's any nipple discharge whether that is more of a milky discharge a clear discharge or a bloody discharge and then, of course, part of the physical exam is going to be to do a thorough breast exam. And a doctor might, might consider aspiration, so they will take fluid 
with a needle out to analyze the lump or they can do mammography if the mass seems a little bit more solid or they might do an ultrasound. And usually if there's any kind of mass, there's going to be close follow-up with regular breast exams and mammography as well. So with breast cancer, it's important to know about risk factors. So some non-modifiable risk factors, which you can't really change, but it's good to keep in mind, is obviously a family history, especially a first-degree relative, like a mother or a sister. Prolonged exposure to estrogen, which could mean taking estrogen, or it could be uh, starting your period early or having menopause late. So every time you have your cycle, your brain is secreting hormones to increase your body's estrogen. So every time you have a, a cycle, you're going to have this period of increased estrogen, which could, every time you have it, is going to increase your risk of breast cancer. Advanced age is also a risk factor for breast cancer. Postmenopausal females have have increased risk. Obviously, females have an increased risk over males. And then if you have dense breasts, that's also a risk factor. Other risk factors could be being at an older age at the time of your first pregnancy. So having uh, your first pregnancy be especially in your 30s or 40s. And then exposure to DES can cause increased risk of breast cancer. And then other factors that you can change, like exposure to radiation, obesity, because fat cells produce estrogen, excessive alcohol use is a huge one, and then smoking. So especially if you have a family history of breast cancer, you really have to quit the excessive alcohol habit and also the smoking habit and get getting to a healthy BMI as well is going to really help you. Some medications can decrease your risk like selective estrogen receptor modulators, also known as SERMs, and possibly also taking NSAIDs and aspirin can decrease your risk of breast cancer. So screening for other malignancies, um, right now there isn't really any recommendation to do skin cancer screening if if there is no reason that you could have skin cancer. So that's not a part of a well visit. And um, with lung cancer, there is a recommendation to do annual screening of a low-dose CT in patients between the ages of 50 and 80 if you have smoked for over 20 years. And this actually discludes people if they quit 15 or more years ago, then they don't need the screening. And for ovarian cancer, there is currently no recommendation to do any kind of screening in patients that are asymptomatic. Another important female wellness issue is uh, osteoporosis and its prevention. So estrogen in this case is a good thing as far as decreasing risk of osteoporosis because 
Estrogen is really good for your bones, but when menopause comes, you don't have as much estrogen and that protection is lost. So many women have to supplement with calcium to prevent osteoporosis and we care about preventing osteoporosis because it can increase your risk of fractures. But this calcium supplementation can actually increase your risk of vascular disease and kidney stones so you really have to be careful and talk to your doctor about it even though it's not really clear by the data at this point but it is often recommended to have that calcium supplementation if you do have a risk of osteoporosis as well as vitamin d supplementation to prevent fractures and this recommendation is for up to 1,000 megs of calcium and up to 400 international units of vitamin D per day in postmenopausal patients. But I think the best thing that you can do is to increase your intake of dairy and have that calcium and vitamin D organic in your diet, as well as having weight-bearing exercises like walking as part of your daily routine because that has been shown to decrease risk of osteoporosis and fractures. So with osteoporosis screening, this starts at age 65 for females only, and that's with a DEXA scan. And osteoporosis, like I said, due to that low estrogen state, but there's other risk factors too. So having an early menopause means that you have less exposure to estrogen. So you can kind of think back to when I was talking about breast cancer being too much estrogen and now osteoporosis too little estrogen. So it's really this balancing act. But there's some risk factors that you'll see are in common to really focus on. Low weight and low BMI is also associated with osteoporosis. So for this, it's important to keep your BMI in the normal healthy range and not going too low either. And like I said, a lack of physical activity and also not enough calcium intake can increase risk of osteoporosis. So that poor calcium intake can also be just from poor nutrition or with alcoholism as well. So alcohol you're seeing is really a risk factor for multiple things that we talked about today. Also, cigarette smoking is is a risk factor for osteoporosis as well. And with breast cancer, I said that African Americans have an increased risk, but for osteoporosis, it's actually uh, Caucasian women that have an increased risk of this. And then like breast cancer, there's also a family component as well, that if you have family history of having an osteoporotic fracture, you are more likely to have one. And then if you have a previous fracture yourself, that increases your risk of subsequent uh, fractures. So for women, BMI is really important. It definitely is important for men, but I'm focusing on the girls here, that BMI is super important. Um, an elevated BMI is going to increase your risk of having type 2 diabetes, having cancers, which not a ton of people talk about, increases your risk of osteoarthritis, so more pressure on those joints, stroke, coronary artery disease, and hypertension, and all the problems that go with hypertension. 
Um, a lot of it is diet, but physical activity is super important. So it directly impacts um, osteoporosis risk, but physical activity can also help with weight loss, decrease BMI, and help so many of these issues too. Physical activity decreases your risk of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, depression, and it is recommended to get 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise every week and 75 minutes of vigorous intensity exercise per week as well. So what does this look like? So if you work out five days a week, so you have two free days, then each of those days you have 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity, which could be walking, and then you have 15 minutes of more vigorous intensity exercise, which could be lifting, doing calisthenics, jogging. That's not a ton, and then you get two two days out of the week off. And if you start that habit now, you're going to reap huge benefits for your health. And if you are at an obese BMI, you might have to double this amount. And that would be a little bit closer to an hour of day. An hour a day to really make huge gains in your health. And at least two days a week, it's also recommended to incorporate strengthening exercises involving all of your muscle groups incorporated into the exercise. So even if you're walking and jogging with your 150 and 75 minutes of activity, you want to at least two days a week incorporate some strengthening, whether you're using dumbbells or doing calisthenics with push-ups and sit-ups. Anything that's going to strengthen you is really important for women. A lot of times it's associated with the guys, but women really, we benefit so much from strengthening too. That's going to be important for our stability, for our joints. Another strategy to optimize health as a woman is cutting out bad habits, for example, smoking. I want to take some time to talk about what a female exam looks like. So the breast exam your doctor will have you uh, usually have a gown on and they will leave the room, allow you to dress into the gown. And for for this, the opening is going to be towards your front so that they can open it up and then see your breasts. So that's how you wear the gown. And then um, when they come in, they'll ask you to lay down. They will open up the gown for one breast at a time. And they will first start out with visualizing. So they're going to look to see if there's a symmetrical shape, if there's any changes to your skin, if there's any redness, dimpling, or retraction of the skin, or any changes to the nipple. They might ask you to lift your arms overhead. Then the next part of this is uh, palpation, which just means that they're going to touch your breast to look for any kind of lumps or bumps. And the physician's going to use the, the pads of their fingers, and they have a very deliberate order of how they can cover the entire breast so that they will not miss anything there. 
And then they might also check for lymph nodes as well, um, more in your armpit area and over your clavicle. So usually this will also involve a pelvic exam. So if you are due for your pap test, the pap test is done in tandem with the pelvic exam. So with the pelvic exam, first you're going to put your heels into footrests that the physician will provide for you. And of course you have a drape over your hips as well that will be pulled up once you're in position. So you're going to slide down to the edge of the table. And so basically your tailbone is going to be at the absolute edge of the table. And you're gonna relax your knees and allow them to fall outward. So this opens up your pelvis. And so first the physician's going to again look and inspect first for any redness, swelling, any lesions or masses. They're going to look at the labia and the labial folds. So the next part of the pelvic exam is going to be the speculum. So the speculum, a lot of times your physician will, will show this to you about what it looks like. So this is just a tool. They have two bills that are together and the physician can open them up, which would retract the walls of your of your vagina so that they can look in between the bills. There's also a way that they can tighten it so that the bills stay apart and so that they can have full view of the cervix. So the physician will make sure that the speculum is warm. Usually the speculum stay on warmers and they'll also lubricate the speculum so that it doesn't cause any discomfort. They will let you know that they're about to begin it. And so they're going to then spread your labia with one hand and then with the other hand, they're going to insert the speculum into your vagina. And then they will open the bills and then be able to visualize between the bills. At this point, um, they will again do another inspection and if they are going to perform a pap test, that is done at this time. So that is done with a spatula and something called a cytobrush. It's just a brush that uh, collects cells. Or they could do uh, one of the newer products have, basically it's a two-in-one, so they only have to go in once. This is to collect a sample from the outside of your cervix and then also get a sample from inside of the cervix. This is to really be able to know if there's any kind of pathology. So this is to look for any signs of cervical cancer or cervical dysplasia, which could be a precursor to cancer. Then they place this into liquid that can then be used for processing. Then your physician might do something called a bimanual exam. Your physician is likely to do this on you if you have any sort of symptoms like pelvic pressure or pain. So in this technique, your physician's going to lubricate both their index finger and their middle finger on a gloved hand. And they're going to insert those fingers into your vagina and then they're going to be able to palpate your cervix side to side 
to see if it causes any pain and to make sure that it's mobile. If your cervix is not mobile, then that might be a sign that something is wrong. And then the physician's other hand is going to be on your abdomen and that's going to feel the uterus from the top side. So they're basically feeling the uterus from both sides, from inside and outside. And that gives the physician an idea of the size and position of your uterus. So that is kind of an overview of what to expect on your female exam. And I hope that this could shed some light on how to optimize your health as a woman and also what to expect when going to see a physician and why doctors do certain things. Let me know that you like First Line. If you are listening on Spotify, tap the star to rate the show. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down and tap to rate or write a review. Thank you so much for your support. You can follow First Line on Instagram at First Line Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash First Line Podcast. Stay tuned for a new episode every Monday.